uh, live from the fraying, very distantly receding edge in Atlanta. We're here today with Alan Shelton in celebration of his new book, Where the North Sea Touches Alabama. An incredible book, very much enjoying it. And Alan is sitting here with us, just gotten off the plane and traveled here. So how was your trip? Uh, uneventful. Well, that's always good. That's the best. On a plane, you don't want any events going yeah, on. I, I was reading about a Jesuit priest in China in the 1500s, a man named Matteo Rishi. Right, memory palaces. Right, Matteo Rishi. so I was reading about yeah. memory palaces yeah. on the way down. Well, your previous book was called Dream Worlds of Alabama, which I read. I don't remember how I came to actually read that. I saw a reference to it, and they had very great things to say about it, and um, so I immediately went to Amazon and ordered a copy of it. Well, I do love that you went immediately to Amazon. It yeah. seems so few Southerners have read the book. It's it's really? mostly Yankees. That's Well, you know what it is? I think it's the amount of theory in it and the way that, that the personal dovetails with theory. Southerners are a little antsy about that, you know, the kind of abstraction that uh, art experimentation, in the case of art, and uh, even writing experimentation, don't you think? Uh, I do. In fact, one of the first reviewers of the book was a, a, a woman in Southern, Southern Studies, a Southerner, who called me a Yankee traitor. And uh, uh, she resented another voyeur coming through the South yeah. once more time. And I, I hesitated to point out to her that my credentials were immaculate. <laughs> that I, you know. That's not germane. You somehow snuck in. Under yeah, I, I, that I would, grew, worked on a black Angus farm in Alabama near yeah. a place called Rabbit Town. And, you yeah. know, I knew how to call up cattle and run bulls up a squeeze. Well, I think it's one thing to be interested in. Um, Native theory, maybe new criticism, which is, I guess, no longer around, or pragmatism, or whatever sociological current is current in American stuff, uh, academic stuff. But to be involved in sort of even edgewise continental theory, the French. I mean, well, the Germans, give me yeah. a break. Man. Well, I, I, I just stumbled upon something yesterday, and that's the uh, the the continuity between Celtic music and Appalachian music. Oh, absolutely. And I wondered if there might be some kind of harmonic convergence between the southern landscape and continental theory, much like there is with the music, that there may be a harmonic convergence and that continental theory may be the best kind of indigenous southern theory, more so than pragmatism, which came out of the northeast. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, People, they've got a knee-jerk reaction, uh, and Atlanta is no different from any other place. Atlanta has somehow leaped over the Mid-South, New South thing, and has sort of hyper-torqued itself into hyper-capitalism. Uh, I, I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on with large amounts of money in Atlanta right now, and so that has, they don't want to have any kind of critique of that. They don't want to have anybody rocking the boat, and uh, even if you're on the the far side of that from any kind of European or continental theory, they still feel a vague whiff of maybe the uncanny huh, that huh. collapses them into some black hole and then wants to whiff them away, which they're exactly right, you know, from my point of view. You know, as you said that, I can imagine James Agee coming in now to write a new Cotton Tenants or Let Us Now Praise Famous Men in the Suburbs of Atlanta. Yeah. And that there's the new uh, capitalist uh, zone that he would be writing about. Well, um, what's his name? Uh, Wolf. Um, Thomas? Uh, oh, you know, Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf. 
wrote a book about Atlanta, the whole developer network. I have a copy of it. I never got around to it. I never. I don't know that book. It's called. I can't, it completely escapes me right now. Uh, some listener maybe will call in two years and remind me what it is. They didn't make a movie of that book. They though. didn't make a movie about it, but it deals with the whole Atlanta developer mentality, which really rules Atlanta. Hmm. Um, and that's. And to go back for a second, uh, I think that. I don't want to eclipse the personal part of it because what attracted me to it was, like I said, the insertion of the personal and the theoretical together. One segues rather smoothly into the other and out of the other one, sometimes in oblique ways, which is exactly what I like. You know, that's another, was an attraction to your writing. Um, how did you come by that particular route? Did, what, did it come naturally or did you plan this as you were going through your academic career and getting out of? the whole rural uh, environment, or how did it happen? Uh, you know, I'd like to force it off on my grandmothers in the complicated world they brought me up in, in which their uh, living rooms and parts of the house were just crowded with books of all kinds, because my grandfather was a professor, oh. and artifacts and old fountain pens and pocket knives and uh, love seats from the 19th century and old daguerreotypes and Civil War heroes. And, and so that kind of crowded parlor is the kind of writing I wanted to do. And, and so that I definitely wanted to integrate theory and narrative into, a, into one piece mm -hmm. rather than to separate it into, we'll call it residential zones as so often the case. Mm -hmm. People separate the theory, they separate the personal, right. they separate the artistic. And I wanted them blended together. Right. Um, and uh, that took a long time to work out. And, to, and in fact, it works against me. It seems it's easier to read for most readers if it is separate. That's odd. It's, well, academic training is really designed to elide the personal in terms of the extremely abstract. Right. And that, that it works in that rarefied region, which I love and which, uh, I mean, I've interviewed from Jacques Derrida to uh, Jean-Francois Leotard, and they all inhabit this very rare region which most of us can't even get to in the facility they have of elucidating these very abstruse linguistic paradigms. But most people I found, and I've tried to find some way to torque things down a little bit and to move it into the personal, see how it comes out of that, that and thinking that that would be more attractive to people to reading it, not to not to water anything down, but to, but to, if nothing else, to bang the personal with the theoretical together. But you're saying that in fact that's really a turnoff even for um, intellectuals for, for the most part. Well, I, I just had a conversation about my book, uh, the new one, where the North Sea is, and and which I think I've even gone further than the first book of integrating and weaving yes, them together, so they're even tighter, and. Um, uh, one of the the person I'm talking to is reading a very famous book that really pioneered continental theory in Southern Studies, a woman named Kathleen Stewart of mm -hmm. The Space on the Side of the Road, mm -hmm. where she has clear zones where she's doing the theory talk, mm -hmm. however, in continental Baroque theory style, and then it moves into the personal or it moves into the artistic. And they found that very easy to read because you, you have clear, you're not dizzy. Right. You're not dizzy, and the way I write creates a seasickness on dry land. Right. Um, and and yet, 
I, my project is to make Derrida absolutely concrete and personal. Yeah. Though he's, though I'm a little tongue-tied after hearing that you've interviewed both of these men previ <laughs> previously, because uh, they are great heroes. Oh, mine. mine too. That's the reason I was privileged to be able to. Derrida was very uh, gracious. Uh, he was doing a week-long stint at Emory in Georgia State, and um, Gayatri Spivak was hurting him around. So we met at this very wealthy patron's place, uh, wealthy section of Atlanta, and um, Spivak was very careful in how he was treated, because evidently he had some kind of ongoing illness. Uh, I don't know what the providence of that was, but it made it a little weird and awkward, you know, for the first 15 minutes of talking to him because of her Mandarin kind of attitude towards everything, sort of interfacing with it. Uh, but speaking of, that reminded me when she was talking about the seasickness, reminded me of the film Vertigo. Yes. And Vertigo, one of my all-time favorite films, there's a scene in it, this is germane to your book, there's a scene in it where they, they wander into the forest of the giant trees and they see a big cut and the, you know, the theremin starts, which you know is the sign of eldritch uncanniness about to, to unfold, and they say, we're here, and the whole range of the tree is here, so you know, deep time begins to, begins to surface, and your book, to some degree, explores that idea of an uncanny deep time. I mean, you even have a diagram. Right. And they're right. having to do with death and life and uh, the scrim between the two. And so can you say some more about how you came? And The Uncanny is one of my... Well, that, that's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. And yeah. I often think about it. And in fact, I, that was, I suppose, part of the guiding principles uh, in my writing, and particularly that diagram you're talking about early on in the book, when I'm at my father's house after his funeral, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm up on top of the mountain looking out over the valley, and I'm situating myself into the whole history. And it is a moment of vertigo and the uncanny. Mm -hmm. um, but that's those little moments, those little whirlpools, those little soft spots, I keep, I tr keep trying to find them. Mm -hmm. uh, my sister just sent me a text yesterday, and I'm very touched that she's reading my book, mm. and she thought it was beautiful. And then uh, I knew further that she was reading my book because she tells me my dead mother's image is appearing in a mirror in, in her house, and that it may be an entry point into the very thing that you're talking about, and that I need to come document this entry point into that world of deep time. Interesting. Uh, you know, that's something that you're talking about, the, the, the uncomfortableness of theory that a lot of people have, even academics, now now that we've gotten past theory, how that was possible that we've gotten past theory, I don't know, but that's what the, well, the stuff is about. Um, but the idea of soft spots in reality, and that not a transcendence, but an uncanniness, which is different from a sublime, it's, mm -hmm. a going, it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an invagination as Derrida might say, that opens up in some ways that we have nothing, we don't know anything about. Uh, that makes people uncomfortable. I mean, there's a popular stance about that with angels and devils and God and things like that. But generally speaking, there's a war going on between people who examine that and people who want to not even have anything to do with it. It makes them very uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Uh, so if you found any reaction like that, or do people approach it from a theoretical point of view and say, well, yeah, that's Well, almost, um, in my own field, I'm a sociologist. Yeah. I, I'm almost never talked about theoretically. Interesting. Uh, at all. Uh, 
uh, that's reserved for people in history complete or uh, right. anthropology. But in my world, they react to the aesthetic. So they'll say, oh, that was poetic, that was lovely. And that's a bad word. And mm-hmm. those are bad words yeah. in my field. Right. Um, You're not they, scientific. They're not, and they can't, because they can't hear the lovely, they can't hear the poetic. Mm-hmm. And these things actually are soft spots for them. Mm-hmm. They're danger zones, and it's quicksand, and they're very afraid. Um, but my work, for better or for worse, uh, is highly theoretical. I mean, I, I'm definitely torquing in some tight, taunt theory uh, strands through the pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it's tripwired up with the, with the aesthetic and with the poetic, right. which I am after. And that brings up another question. You, you make great use of Walter Benjamin. I've often been taken to task for the same Walter Benjamin, so now I'm going to try to remember. Oh, I do appreciate that you did the German, the double German. Yeah. You must only do the, the German on the last name, but right. you did the double German. That's fantastic. Uh, so, I mean, I've got like a whole wall of books on Walter Benjamin, or Walter Benjamin in, in the house there, and uh, commentary as well as his own material. And I remain fascinated by it, even though it's become a cottage industry now. I, I see nothing wrong with that, from my point of view, since I have an interest in him. But do you have any thoughts about um, why exactly um, Benjamin has had such a, a an explosion of interest? When I say explosion of interest, we're still talking about a handful of people, probably, you know. But nevertheless, Officially, I mean, the Los Angeles Review of Books has a big review article on him a few months back. So, you know, it's, it's, he's like a subterranean current going through a lot of material now. So do you have any thoughts about whence the resurging popularity, so um, to speak? Of I was looking through an old book of mine and it, from the mid-70s that I got when I was just trying to read this stuff. I think it was by Victor Bergen. Mm. I think this is right. And he was talking about the cottage industry already around Benjamin on the New Left. Yeah. That everybody opened their essays with a with a quote from Benjamin. Right. Everybody. I mean, it's yeah. if you're going to love letters are open with a quote from Benjamin. Right. Um, but there's now an even greater explosion uh, of his work and his interest of the work. But again. I live in a very cloistered environment, so I'm right. at a small school in Buffalo. No one reads Walter Benjamin on my campus. <laughs> uh, there's a, only a handful of people who would know who he is. And then in wow. sociology, um, it, you know, I, I, I was at a session this summer where one of the critiques of a paper was that the the reader did not contextualize who Sigmund Freud was. <laughs> and okay. uh, this was a criticism of the paper uh, that he needed to tell the audience who Sigmund Freud. So if Freud is wow. disappearing, uh, Benjamin is not happening at all in sociology, wow. except though he is starting to appear mm-hmm. on again on the edges in some of the high-end theory books. He, his name will nominally be quoted as mm-hmm. part of the Frankfurt School. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there was a time in my cafe in Buffalo where it seemed everybody had the Arcades Project app. Mm-hmm. 
and at the university at Buffalo, the large flagship university, there right. was a professor there, Henry Sussman, now at Yale. I love Henry Sussman. Oh, I just you? read something, a passage, uh, and yeah, I've read some of his things. Yeah. I have a cameo about him in my new yes. book. Uh, yeah, oh, you saw that? that? That's the passage yeah. you mean. Uh, he was a great scholar of Benjamin, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, in fact, he's the one who is responsible for my... You keep going, that's German pronunciation, German-Israeli pronunciation of uh -huh. his name. Right. Uh, well, I'm, I'm wondering sometimes if the... Uh, I'm looking for Rowan right here. We're wandering around the backyard shortly before Alan's appearance with, with the three people who I will show up. Uh, is the itinerant nomadic quality of Benjamin himself and his, uh, his sort of exclusion um, by, I mean, the Trauspiel book was called, you know, completely unreadable at the time by people who were working, giving, trying to give him some kind of accreditation. And uh, uh, so I, I'm wondering if, I'm trying to think of myself and my, my great interest in Benjamin, I mean, Susan Sontag's great, article which I read early on. I read the same one. Yeah, and I used and, to uh, see reflections and illuminations in the bookstore a long, long time ago when they first came out. And I was curious about it, but you know, it didn't speak to me until later on and I'd gone through school and said, okay, now I, I can see, you know, why there's a certain amount of um, frisson around Benjamin's adventures, you know, both because of his personal life and his wayfaring, perhaps. I don't know. It, it, is that just speaking to me, or do you? No, I was exactly my identification with him. His difficulty with his dissertation spoke to me for many, many yeah. years. Yeah. And I was an itinerant professor for ten years, crisscrossing the country. Mm -hmm. And um, I was also told I was unreadable uh, more than one time. Um, that is so bizarre. Um, Let me tell you a funny story about that before you go any further. You know, I'm a member of a group, somewhat in. in uh, laid down to rest, I guess, to some degree, although Fort Dodge Press is sponsored by Public Domain Inc., which is a nonprofit. We applied to uh, a big government agency um, to get a grant, and I wrote the primary grant, and it was vetted by the head of the complete department at Emory. He says, yeah, this is good. I'm like, surprisingly, he thought that was... But we got a, a thing back rejecting it, and he said, this is close to impenetrable. So I use that for my blog site and for a lot of for a book that I wrote. So I mean that's not an uncommon problem, and you wonder why you know it's there are arrows that stick in your flesh, but because you don't really know, can't see why that would be the case. I don't know. And, I mean well, your work seems your work seems very limpid and clear. I mean I don't. Um, so I don't. Yeah. So uh, the first book, uh, a student, one of my former students' uh, grandmother, grandmother's just died, mm -hmm. and her mother reread one of my essays, assembling Mary Pullen for a Cry, over again. Her mother read it. Who hasn't? We never went to college. Found it reassuring and beautiful mm -hmm. and easy to read. Yeah. But I, I've. Students, grad students at Northwestern read the same essay and found it impenetrable. And I think it goes back wow. to the very same thing we said, this hyper-personal, very personal, yeah. um, or my digging a grave for someone I loved. They, that was just too much. unimaginable for them. Right. It was too tactile, too physical, too concrete. And, uh, and the use of marks that I used on them, they couldn't 
They be couldn't asked. fathom it. They right. couldn't go with it. Um, well, so. um, I mean, your work really speaks to me because being from Mississippi, the middle of Mississippi, I'm growing up there in my formative years, leaving at a certain point and disavowing. And I'm, we'll talk about that some if anybody ever shows up for this thing. And disavowing Mississippi completely. When I was in graduate school, telling people I was from Atlanta because I was so embarrassed of Mississippi. So it took me a long time because I was from Philadelphia, Mississippi, almost first casualties of the civil rights movement, Swerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Uh -huh. So that was very hard to, uh, uh, to deal with. But um, I found myself going back and re-examining all my experiences in Mississippi and trying to form them into some kind of resonance. Well, they're already resonating for me, much like they did my last uncle just died of a large family, just died this past year, which caused a great amount of grief and uh, sort of examining my life. And so your book came along about that same time in an uncanny sort of fashion. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why I'm so enamored and taken with it because of the emphasis on death, dying, uh, the beyond, uh, ghost, devils perhaps, angels, I don't know. They're right. always lurking right. somewhere. There's there. a lot of those. So it seems to be in the book that you give um, what I would call sort of an ontological perhapsness to that phenomenon, if not outright yesness to, to the phenomenon. So without giving the cat out of the bag, you want to talk about how how is it a philo fiction that you're operating with in dealing with these issues, or is there some level of belief in that, or is it not germane? Well, I, I was a candidate for the Episcopal priesthood. Oh, and I was okay. also a wangdanger. I was involved in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. I knew that from Dreamland. And, uh, uh, yeah. you know, they wanted to send me off the seminary, and in fact, I was recruited to go to South Africa by missionaries. Wow. So I had cred and license to heal and cast out demons in that world. Uh -huh. um, the new book goes even further. So um, uh, someone who has a blog site has excerpted all my sermons on Jesus on, wow. onto their blog site. To and someone you know? No, I have no idea who they are. They deliver bread in Vermont. And I, uh, they've excerpted all my sermons on Jesus, which they're more than I remember. <laughs> And the very title of the book is taken from a, a Victorian children's book called At the Back of the North Wind, which mm. is taken from a line from Herodotus, which describes a group of people who live behind the North Wind in this kind of perfect place. And in George MacDonald's hand, who's the, the inspiration behind C.S. Lewis's conversion, that's where people go who die and wait for Jesus's return. Mm. It's not, you know, they're not dead. They're not in heaven. They're in this place called at the back of the north wind where they can see the living uh, from far, far away while they await the apocalypse. Mm. Also, um, I very much appreciate all your words on the apocalypse. Because oh, oh, that's another interest. I was just reading uh, the Derrida uh, article from originally in Samea about a tone recently adopted in philosophy, apocalyptic tone. So I was going back and read revisiting uh, a lot of that. So I have a lot of hope that I will see. I'm not exactly sure where it's grounded anymore. Uh, I have a lot of hope that I will see those I loved once again. Mm. So that really does permeate my book. And your idea that uh, Jesus may be more than we remember may also grate 
um, someone else is here. Okay, thank you. <laughs> May also grade on academics since uh, any mention of religion is always very circumscribed oh, with hey, scare oh, quotes. Oh, I have to tell you, I, um, I organized a session on this woman named Laura Richardson who was a performative sociologist and an autoethnographer years ago in a cafe. And her piece was called Vespers or Evening Prayer. And so for my, for my response to her piece, I, I, did, I said a, a couple of words about Duchamp and ready-mates, and then I performed Vespers straight. She broke down in tears. Uh, the whole room was absolutely silent. And then when I was through, people were whispering that I was a fundamentalist Christian. And they were terrified that God was going to strike me dead for this profanity. Um, but I found it to be absolutely beautiful. And the, of course, the most uh, perfect, but at the same time, uh, profound uh, confrontation with sociologists to perform a religious rite straight, mm -hmm. which they could not mm -hmm. handle. They well, could not handle it. I, I find that very refreshing in a way. I mean, I disavowed, I was in the Baptist church. My grandparents were what were called hard shell Baptists back then. Uh, now I guess it would be called fundamentalists, although that's, you know, that's not really fair. I like fair the to turtle you. reference in that hard, hard shell. shell. Yeah. Also, like, uh, Pecans. There's a hard shell. Oh, that's true. Shell. Or, um, yeah, theoretically Weber instead of steel casing, hard shelled. Right, yeah. Um, so there's something about that that's very attractive to me. I, I often say that the things that are in the South that make it so memorable are the three R's, religion, race, and remembrance, and that all those are tied into a very heady mix that academics are too often prone to dismiss, I think, in a lot of different they're glad to adapt Buddhism, or they're glad to adapt uh, uh, Coptic Gnosticism, or whatever, you know, but their own homegrown right. things. They haven't examined enough to know that there are deep wells of mystery, and, uh, I'm, not, and I'm not speaking from a, quote, believer in that whole structure. I'm no, saying that I recognize... Sometimes you toss the baby out with the, the bathwater. No, the I think there are deep mysteries in Christianity, Southern Christianity, that are powerful to think with. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, that's uh, some of my most powerful and sophisticated tools come from my time in the church. Because mm -hmm. uh, I was brought up hearing about Jesus and reading the stories. And so I think with these stories, I think with Samson, um, and so it makes sense to employ them to produce what I need to produce. Right. This is your fellow reader, our fellow reader, Sean Beeching. How do you do? Hey, Sean Beeching. Sean's going to be uh, reading on, uh, do a reading on uh, Zell Miller. I have no, I have no idea how this came about, but perhaps Sean can elucidate that. We were talking about religion in, in Southern life, and uh, which we're about to just terminate this and see where we are on this. That's about 26 oh, minutes. That's a good, uh, yeah, it's about a good 26 minutes there. So let's, let's discontinue this and see how it comes out in the end. <laughs>